All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckabillies? What's going on? This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. What have I got to tell you? A couple things. First of all, John Mayall is on the show today. And I don't know how many of you know who he is, but John Mayall and the Blues Breakers were a very important band, uh, not, not just in John's own right, but the fact that a lot of people started in that band, the Blues Breakers, people like Eric Clapton, perhaps you know him, people like John McVie, Mick Fleetwood, Peter Green. Peter Green, come on. But anyways, I got the opportunity to talk to John Mayall, and I took it. So John came over to my house, and we, uh, we talked about the old days. We talked about the blues, and we talked a bit about Peter Green, because as some of you know, I'm a bit obsessed with Peter Green. Also on today's show, uh, Mr. Dan Pashman. Uh, Dan hosts the Sporkful podcast and the Cooking Channel web series, You're Eating It Wrong. Uh, both of these are good outlets for Pashman's specific type of obsessive compulsive bullshit which i enjoy uh, dan and i go back a bit we we uh, met at uh, air america back in the day when i started that job and he was an associate producer and uh he had a crew cut and i couldn't understand why he had a crew cut and he scratches his head a lot when he's thinking and he has a, a very distinct laugh that can go either way depending on your mood in terms of how you receive it and the uh, intensity of uh, whether you're receiving joy or wow that's annoying but dan will be on and i i know the cat's out of the bag i understand that i understand that i got a big mouth i get it i want you people to know things but i'm sometimes i shouldn't say things do you, you know what i'm talking about are any of you aware of uh of what i'm talking about yes yes i have put it out into the world but i in my mind i was just in conversation i did an event where uh I was interviewed for the New Yorker Fest, and I was asked by a member of the audience about Lorne Michaels, and I said, yes, I'm going to be interviewing Lorne Michaels. Now, we've all been waiting for this. And on some level, no one's been waiting for it more than me, but on, on another level, in my mind, it, it, even if it didn't happen, it would be fine. That would honor the story. For those of you who frame it in the Moby Dick uh, narrative, that I should not get the white whale. But the truth is, I did get him. I did. I don't really want to go into details about what was said. You'll hear it eventually. You will hear it. The thing is, here's the problem. We've always joked that if 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 I got to interview Lorne, it would probably be the last episode of the show. That would be the last episode of the show. Okay, so now we have it. and And we're not really sure what's next. Do you understand? I got to sweep on this, people. And I'm really not sure. Yeah, I, I, I don't know when it's going to air. And, uh, and I don't know what's going to happen after it does. Okay? I'll keep you posted. And I'm sorry if I left you in the dark about it. I should have just kept it to myself until, you know, we, we, we had all our ducks in a row. But, but I, got, I got giddy. And I spilled the beans. I'm in New York still. Uh, just across the way, one of the charming things about New York, there is a, a group of men uh, you know, at work uh, doing what inspired the show Stomp. Unfortunately, uh, this particular version of that unscripted Stomp begins at about 7 in the morning. Uh, there's a lot of hammers. None are in rhythm. There seems to be no real context. 
uh, artistically, though they are building a structure. So that's the context. It's got nothing to do with pleasing me as an audience member, and quite honestly, it's disrupting my sleep and making me unhappy. But uh, but given that it's uh, not a performance piece, there's nothing I can really do to complain about it, nor can I move. I could ask for another room, but this is New York, and this is what you have to put up with, even at the nice places. How many panes of glass can you use? I think the most important thing that's happened to me this trip, aside from talking to Lauren Michaels, was probably having a realization about my anger. First night here, there was some racket going on. We had been up a, a long bit of time. We'd been up uh, traveling from four in the morning from North Carolina and got here and had to do a couple of things and wanted to nap. This is the first room that I was given here at the hotel. And uh, the the room adjacent, uh, I don't know what was going on, but the, the door was slamming, I would say, on a 20 to 30 second interval. Uh, I'd laid down to rest. I closed my eyes, and this door just started fucking slamming every minute or two, like 12, 15 times, until uh, I got up. I was in my boxers. Uh, I I got up in that sort of like, in in you know, the action you take when you've been festering for about 15, 20 minutes where it's almost involuntary, where your body just becomes the movement of a, of, of a, a, a full body fist moving towards the door. I, I pop open the door. I was in my boxers. I, I vaguely heard uh, Sarah wake up as well and say, your penis, because uh, I, I think that maybe she was concerned that I was not paying attention to whether it was out or in. I was not planning on going into the hall, but I opened the door and I was right in front of me was a bellman and the other door was open. Uh, and I looked in the room and I, I could see just you know vaguely uh, a, a woman you know doing something up to things. There's a lot of busyness is what I heard. And I said, hey, can you take it easy with the door, please? And then the bellman looked at me and said, sorry. And I slammed my door. And I, 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 then I looked down and I, I did not notice that my penis was out. So then I laid down and I, I went into a fantasy. I don't have as many revenge fantasies as I used to. It used to be a fairly favorite pastime of mine that happened um, without much provocation. You know, I would, I would sort of go through my mind and think, you know, who could I uh, imagine in a situation where they got theirs yeah, where I teach them a lesson, huh? Some of those things, you know, I, I was surprisingly adept at martial arts. Uh, occasionally, I'd be armed, uh, but would never use it, you know, just in a threatening way. I, you know, I'm, I apologize for even thinking that, but but it might be true. Uh, occasionally, I would I would watch them or set up a situation where they would be gloriously hoisted onto their own petard. I was active, man. I was active with the revenge fantasies because it made me feel better. But then they all went away. It just was not something my brain did anymore until I was laying in bed after I'd said, could you please take it easy with the door? And the fucking door slammed even harder. So then this is what went through my head. All right, that was a spiteful slam of the door in response to my completely polite yet slightly aggravated request that they stop that shit. And then I pictured, all right, there's a woman in there, but that was definitely a, a big dude, a bro of a certain size, 
slamming that door to show me that uh, he didn't give a fuck what I had to say. So in my mind, I fucking put my pants on. No reason to start shit in your boxers if you're going to follow through with that shit because if something happens, especially to you, and you go down, you're going to be in your boxers and you're not going to have any control of the penis being in or out if you're out. Dig? So in my mind, I fucking pound on the door. A large bro, uh, muscular, younger than me, with a lot of fucking attitude. Uh, I'm not going to say Italian, but uh, hints of that maybe. Doesn't matter. Just trying to paint a picture. I think just a general bro, non uh, nationality specific bro. And I'm like, dude, what's, uh, what's the fucking problem? And he's like, yeah, what is your fucking problem? And I said, well, what's with the fucking door? And he goes, you got a fucking problem. And he pushes me. And then I waited out. Cause in that moment in the fantasy, I realized that, uh, we're grown ass men. And if he hits me, there's legal repercussions. So this is the weird turn the fantasy took. My revenge fantasy where I kick some guy's ass is that he pushes me. I said, fuck you. You know, this is bullshit. You can't fucking slam a door. You got to have respect for other people. And then I just stand there. I stand him off and he fucking pops me in the face right in the nose. This is in the fantasy. I get hit in the face hard and my nose is bleeding and I and, and I get some satisfaction out of this because I look at him and go, I hope you have some fucking money saved up because you're going to pay for this in court. And then I sued him for a physical assault, a grown man. And I, I, I think in the in the settlement, I made about $250,000, which I didn't even want. It wasn't the money. It was the principle. This fucker can't just go hitting me or hitting people out in the world, right? And then, like, you know, then he learns his lesson. That's a long way to go. And, and to be honest with you, a little cowardly, and I was ashamed of myself. But on the, the other, the alternative fantasy was he goes, yeah, I got a lot of fucking money. I got so much money. And then he just throws a few hundred on the floor. There's some money. And I stand there with a bloody nose. I'm like, that's not enough. So all this time I'm holding my bloody nose. And in my mind, I'm victorious. You know, it's like, I'm going to fucking, I'll show you. I'm going to kick your ass in a few months. And, and, and then for as long as it takes after that to sell this with, with legal fees and maybe an out of court thing, like, it was so protracted, this revenge fantasy, and so seemingly somewhat cowardly that it was at that moment that I realized, like, you know, maybe maybe I've outgrown this anger. You know, clearly my revenge fantasies don't have the teeth they used to. And if I'm really fantasizing about not only getting in an altercation, but getting a bloody nose and then, you know, taking the time to, you know, for anywhere from three months to, to a number of years to win a lawsuit against a fucking ape man for a physical assault that maybe it's, it's time to just process the anger differently. And by the way, I, I forgot to mention that, that what was going on, it was a bride next door who was getting married that night. So there was a lot of in and out, I imagine, with bridesmaids and mothers and people tending to the bride, making sure everything, you know, dresses and whatnot, hair, uh, shoes, uh, support and all that stuff. So what I did do, as opposed to get hit by a non-existent groom uh, who was who was going to uh, defend his bride to be, you know, from the 
irritating, neurotic, angry old Jew next door, middle-aged Jew, let's go middle-aged Jew, uh, what I did and said was I called down and I said, look, you got to get me out of here. You got to get me out of here, please. And they moved us. They moved us to another room. And I felt good because I felt like, I felt, I felt bad about the initial bit of anger I had. Though I hope that if the bride did see me that the boxers were hilarious and that she was like, oh, what's that guy's problem? And as we were changing rooms, we saw the mother of the bride in the hallway eating a bagel and cream cheese, holding a plate. And she said, uh, sorry, it's a big wedding tonight. I'm like, well, uh, I, I'm going to another room and, and I want you to have a good time. And she said, oh, we'll have a good time. And it was exactly that attitude that uh, I knew was had to be avoided. The, the persistence of, you know, it's, it's her day and no one's going to fuck with it. Yeah, I didn't want to conflict with that because, frankly, even at my most empathetic in that moment, I didn't give a fuck about her day. And I did the right thing and I got out of it. And I hope she had a great, great wedding. So now, um, Dan Pashman, yes, uh, he's been on the show before. You may have, you may have, you may have, you may have heard him here, or maybe you go all the way back to when, as I said, we were on Air America, or maybe you've listened to to the uh, Sporkful. He was out in L.A. and he he's not there very often. I asked him to come over to the garage so we could argue about some uh, things, some food and whatever, because that's what he does with me. That's what we do, me and Pashman. And I think this may be the beginning of a short series where I argue with old friends over bullshit. Would that be okay? So I bring you now from the Sporkful and from the Cooking Channel web series, You're Eating It Wrong. Uh, this is me and Dan Pashman. But you're not a car guy. What kind of car do you drive, Dan Pashman? Um, we have a, a Honda CRV. That, so you have a, C, an, uh, a CRV. It's, like an, it's, a, it's a small SUV for your family. Yeah, you have how many children? Two kids. Yeah, two. Are you done? Yes. Okay. How old are they? Two and four and a so half. So you need that. You need to have that size car. You need the space. Yeah. And and anyway, it was uh, it was a gift from my in laws when they got a new car. They give us their old one. So uh, we. So were... you like never out of college. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's like, what yeah. else do you need? All right, so what, what have you been doing? I mean, the last time I talked to you, what did we, what did we cover? We talked about uh, my book a little bit, and we talked about- What is the book, uh, The Sporkful? How's that book selling? It sold pretty well. It's over? Yeah, I mean, it's still there. You can yeah. go buy it. But like now I'm focusing mostly on my podcast. The po- the, the Sporkful. Yeah, The Sporkful podcast. And um, what's, the, what's, the, like, I, I, what's the tagline to it? Uh, we say it's not for foodies, it's for eaters. Yeah, that's fucking clever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys were pretty happy when he came up with that. Yeah, right? that's pretty good. It, people identify <laughs> with it. Yeah. <laughs> but you were like, was that a brain a brainstorming session? Well, like, it's funny. I, were you, was it the final hour before you had to post the first episode? Four thirty <laughs> in the morning. You're sweating. You got a beard. Right. <laughs> like, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna say? How do we explain it? <laughs> It's funny because I came up with like five catchphrases and that was not one of them. And it actually like the very first couple episodes of The Sporkful. No catchphrase? The catchphrase, the original catchphrase for the first couple episodes yeah. was where sacred cows get grilled. Ah, yeah. Which I actually liked more. But like very early on and like, I had, but I had but some- But to me that's like, that's, that's a little, that's like an NPR nuance. You think so? Yeah, it's just too clever. Like, you know, it's not for foodies, it's for eaters. That's a working class, the proletariat. Yeah. 
You're right. Yeah, maybe you keep the podcast ad, and for your NPR show, you add the secret right. cow that's grilled. Right. It's so. <laughs> but then I'd get then the NPR vegetarians would be after me. Well, you're never going to please those people. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we, okay, so we talked about the sport. We talked about the book. We talked about. But we what do we like? We talked we, about wings. We talked a lot about. Oh wings. yeah, you were wrong on that. <laughs> well, well. No, I, I've been no. They, I mean, I've been. The, time and history is on my side on that. <laughs> History? What history? The history of wings, <laughs> <laughs> of how to prepare them properly. But now that I'm here, I want to. We don't need to keep talking about wings, Mark. No, no, I mean, it's over. I, I, well, I, wanna... I, I cajoled you into having coffee, and you looked at my device. Yeah, I want to consult said, is that, here. Is that a pour over? Before I Not start, really, no. before I start arguing with you and telling you the new ways in which you're wrong. Yeah. I've been using an AeroPress. Yeah, I didn't on I didn't... your recommendation. Yeah, for about five years. But, but the, to me, for me, as well, the reason the AeroPress, it's fine. It's good. People love it. But it's a, it's sort of an ordeal. And if you're a fucking coffee addict, like sometimes I'll do a triple espresso and make a pot of coffee and drink that fucking pot of coffee. So what? every time I got to do an AeroPress, I got to go through the whole thing with the little circles. Right. I can't fucking, you know what yeah, I mean? I'm not saying, pot, right. right. I'm not saying it's not a great thing, but it's not for addicts. I love how there's a new uh, recurring theme in your show about sort of like bargain hunting mm. and shopping. I've noticed Is that- Is there? Well, there, I, I, I love how um, uh, air travel has become a recurring theme in recent episodes of WTF. <laughs> oh, with the president. Well, no, but like, like uh, you talked about Vince Gilligan. Yeah. There was another guy that you talked about. Like, oh, I did? What airline do you fly? Oh, right. <laughs> like, like when it had nothing to do with whatever you were talking about. Like, <laughs> I think there should be a spinoff WTF podcast, just like Mark's Deal of the Week. And what, the, like... what the fucking thing is, is that people, like, like I like I fucking hell, I hate Delta. But then there's people that are like, no, I love Delta. It's all I fly. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Right. But it's the same with cell phone providers. I mean, like, after a certain point, you, you develop a loyalty to them for whatever reason. You get enough perks to where you can, you know, fly comfortably, hopefully, or at least have the shot at that. I mean, all these airlines have shitty planes. It's really how they put lipstick on their pig of a plane. You know, you don't know how old those fucking planes are. You know when you're in a new one and you're like, this should be good. Right. But sometimes you get on those planes, you can actually see the how many times it's had a paint job by the door. And you're like, what is this like from 1960 this point but but yeah it's a loyalty thing for some reason you know i get i'm very loyal to to shit yeah why what do you fly (laughs) i usually go whatever's cheapest see that's a bad move yeah but i mean like i mean i I am partial to like jet blue and virgin america yeah Um, but jet blue it's that's sort of over isn't it i mean about the blue chips and the no class i mean you get free wi-fi uh you do you get free wi-fi you get um like, like nice big screens that you can watch. Are they that big? They're pretty good size. I yeah. don't know. I mean, I don't know. It felt to me that JetBlue at some point, I was at a JetBlue terminal. I think it was at LaGuardia. And I'm like, this is over because it just felt like a fucking bus station. Yeah. Well, don't they all feel like that? I mean, no. it, which ones do you like better? Well, I don't fly. I'm not going to fly Spirit Air or Jazz or whatever the fuck those are. I don't even know what's going on over there. You walk by those things, and it's sort of like, do this, is there no luggage requirement? Right. It looks like this person is moving on to the plane. <laughs> so. <laughs> but but no I, I i i guess so like southwest you would think but oddly southwest their system of groupings very orderly and people are like it's actually a, an interesting way to to almost be democratic in a way you, you're like on this line they're like what are you i'm like i'm 37 like okay i'm 38 i'm behind you and i'm like <laughs> okay that was nice we worked that out as people right and and uh i've, I've had no bad experience with southwest if for 
flying out of Burbank. I just haven't flown JetBlue in a while. Virgin's pretty good, aside from the nightclub vibe. Right. Yeah, that, yeah that, I agree. That the music in the bathroom. A much. The lighting. The lighting, you know? yeah, too much. Yeah, and I, I like the system where you just you, you order things on your screen. They're the only ones that do that. Yeah. I like that. That is good. You just kind of push or poke around, and then someone comes. And they have, uh, but whatever. So you fly whatever. I, I just think, <sighs> I think that this is a whole spinoff new category for you. It's a new vertical like, in the Marin I think Empire. it's only relative to the fact that I've been traveling a shitload yeah. in the last four months. All right. So the coffee, how's that coffee? It is very good. You I like do it. like it. I want to ask you a question about the president's coffee, which is still on display it here. It was tea. It was tea. Oh, so did he bring it in himself? How no, it's a, a woman who worked with the uh, motorcade, uh, I guess the White House caterers or chefs or whoever, food department, I don't know what they're called. Right. Travels with him and brings it in before he gets in. So like when he, so so someone, he has an advanced team that delivers his food for him. Well, it was one woman, but yeah, there's a lot of people here. And she came and she set up his tea. And a water. In, in a paper cup with a presidential seal and a water and a napkin. Yeah. Oh, see, what's interesting to me is I bet part of that is a security thing. Probably. It's like a food taster. Right. They don't want you to give him coffee and God knows what could be in it. No, they don't even want to go in the house, really. Right. Or, or the bathroom, even. That's uh, See, that's why I can't be president is because I'd always have to go to the bathroom. And oh, you, you think can't... that's the only reason? <laughs> is that the... Thank God we know. Yeah. Because, yeah, I... I that's what's holding me back. I knew this was a tough decision for you yeah. to make. <laughs> I was really on the fence. Yeah, you're at home just driving your wife crazy. Like, should I run? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was at least maybe one tweet yeah, asking yeah, yeah. me. So Yeah. All right. Um, was there tea left yeah, in the Yeah, there cup? was. And did you drink it? No. You didn't drink the president's tea? I didn't. I didn't even think to do that. That's like the closest thing to like sleeping in his bed. I touched him. He's right there. You're sitting. You're, like, your ass drinking, is on his seat. Well, that's exciting. That is exciting yeah. for me. But- Drinking, I don't, I don't know. I don't. You know. I would have drank his tea. Like everyone sees that cup, and they're like, his DNA's on it. I'm like, what are you going to do with that? Like, wait, I don't know why how people's brains work. I don't know. I just feel like to to, to drink to like, I mean, like that's. I talked to him for an hour. That, look, that's very special. Would you want? Do you feel like we need to swap spit? That like, <laughs> I would drink it out of the hole that he drank it out of, and I could say, well, what? That me and the president. It's weird. What am I going to drink his tea for? It's probably just tea. So you just poured it out. Yeah. I just wanted the cup. What do you want? Should I have a little vial next to it, a little with the tea in it? That was what was in. That would be fucking. It's already weird that I have a domed glass cup. No, no, it's not. It's actually brilliant. It's not weird at all. I'm definitely going to take a picture of it. Okay. So with the, the coffee thing, so you got the AeroPress going, but you like this coffee, so there's no argument there. This is not pour over. Maybe it's pour over, but there's a place in New York that does this cone where. You have the cone, and then you put the grounds in it, and you weigh it out properly, and then you put the water, and you leave it in there for four minutes, and then you put your uh, releases on top of a glass. I, I can't. I have no patience for those. But you can sit there with that AeroPress, which is like loading a syringe. Well, I don't like. I don't really like the AeroPress. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly like I'm kind of lazy with my home coffee game. But, but those, you don't do those don't places use that pods, are so pretentious. I mean, you, you parodied, parodied pour over. It yeah, now I'm doing it at home. In, uh, I know, I know. on your IFC show, but I know. like, and you go to these places, all the guys behind the kind of look like like. The rejected members of Mumford and Sons, or yeah, something. yeah. I mean, I can't. Well, the thing is, is though, the weird thing is, if you get a good pull and it's a good, it's a good shot, like, and it's at a high end place, and the coffee, like, it, there is a variation to it. There, there is a, you know, you can't, but you know, ultimately, it's just, you know, what grade of drug you want to use and what kind of dealers do you want to deal with. Yeah. Like, if I go to New York, the first fucking thing I do when I get off the plane is go to that Dunkin' Donuts right there. I'll go to the fucking Dunkin' Donuts because I'm like, this stuff is garbage, but it's like fucking crack. Right. And I'll drink it. 
because it's just like it's in my heart, it's in my mind. Like I'm like I got to get a Dunkin' Donuts coffee, then I'll drink the. I drink way too much coffee still. <laughs> Don't you remember on Air America, I used to load up on that Dunkin' Donuts. Sometimes we'd get a carton of it. Totally. That was always, it was always kind of, uh, there was a bell curve with your your mental state and the show. Um, I used to get M&Ms. I used to have to like, I would sugar oh, yeah. and caffeinate myself into mania. Yes. To get started. Yeah. I don't it, even know what that shit sounds like. That's probably sounds a little like I am now, because I'm a little like that now. But it's a, it's a, it's a higher register. Yeah. Your yeah, voice yeah. is in a higher well, register. Well, I was completely fueled by panic and a lack of understanding of what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I um I was gonna tell you I mean I I, I was at your uh, your marination show in Huntington which was a, a great show well, we did all right I thought you did a great job thanks buddy I really enjoyed it I loved the new material I um I did have to take issue with your statement on stage that cocoa pebbles are better than fruity pebbles yeah how is that what well like cocoa pebbles like there's a hundred co- chocolate cereals cocoa pebbles and cocoa krispies are almost identical. Right, but they're different than cocoa puffs. Oh, very different. Yes, right. yes. Um, that's a whole other category. Like, like, there's a lot of chocolatey cereals. There are a few fruity cereals, but I feel like fruity pebbles are more are, are unique. Yeah, but doesn't matter. For me, it was like it didn't make sense. Those colors weren't normal. Even if the cocoa pebbles are food colored, I didn't pay that much attention to that when I was a kid. But it seemed like there was something organic about the idea of chocolate being brown and the texture of them. The texture of cocoa pebbles, they weren't like Rice Krispies. They were a little flatter and they had a little glaze to them. Yeah. And they were chocolatey. And then the fruity pebbles were like, there was that horrible yellow and like a pink and maybe what a blue. Like, I don't even remember what the colors were, but there's nothing natural about it. It looks weird. The milk is just pink when you get done with it. And it, it and the fruitiness of it, texturally they were the same, but I was not on board for the colors. I did not, I did not, I did, I didn't like it. But you know, some cereals that I never got when I was a kid because they were unruly uh, to me in the bowl, uh, like, like what? Uh, sugar pops, the corn kernel cereals. They were a little like, you know, they didn't really change texture at all with the milk and they were just sort of like they'd float in the milk differently. So you like you like that transformation to take place in the bowl? A little bit. Sometimes. I mean, I don't always like it. I like, yeah, but actually I do. I'll even let like bran flakes if they like if raisin bran gets mushy, I'm good. I'm good with it. Have frosted ever... flakes, mushy frosted flakes, I'm cu- I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not hung up on the crispiness of it. Remember um but buckwheat uh but oh, what were they called? Golden Grams. Oh, yeah, those are good. Those were good. Those were like almost like this crossover, like, you know, adulthood cereal. Yeah. Like Golden Grams, like it felt a little more sophisticated than the fruity cereals. Lucky Charms. My brother ate Lucky Charms and he ate Fruity Pebbles, and both of those were bullshit to me. Captain Crunch, Quisp, no good. I was in Quake. Quisp? Quisp. I never heard With the little space guy on it. You never heard of Quake and Quisp? I don't think so. Huh? Why? (laughs) Well, what's your point? You're going to defend Fruity Pebbles on what grounds? Well, I... uh... I, I, I'll grant you that it, like, the issue of the color is sort of a matter of taste. Like, if you just don't like things that look like they're artificially colored, you know, I, that's valid. I just love, I, I happen to love Fruity Pebbles. I think that's a great cereal. What? I, I, I love the pebble shape. I like uh, cereals that get that turn soggy quickly. I just realized this is what they did to me and my brother. Quisp and Quake. They pitted us against each other. Pebbles did and Quisp and Quake. Like, Quisp had the little goofy space dude with the propeller head, and Quake was this, uh, like, a giant He-Man guy. So you think cereal, it had a big influence on your relationship with your brother? Well, no, it just gave you choices, and you had to, you know, you had to be different, you know what I mean? Like, right. you know, he's going to do that thing. And I don't think he fared any better for, you know, having Quisp and <laughs> Fruity Pebbles. I don't know if those were the right decisions to make. <laughs> How's he doing? He's all right. <laughs> Whatever he's going through, though, we're going to have to hang it on the cereal. <laughs> 
Why? What are your kids eating? What are you making them eat? Muesli? No, I mean, my wife gives them Lucky Charms, which drives me crazy because that's so nasty. The marshmallows and the cereal, they're, they're awful marshmallows. It's full of chemicals and food coloring and all that. I don't give my kids Fruity Pebbles now. I just love, like, to me, surface area to volume ratio is a huge issue in cereals. What is- yeah. <laughs> what does that fucking mean? Do you remember that from science class? The surface area. Do you forget area... who you're talking to? Do, do <laughs> I remember science right. class? I'll say it again. I'll say it again <laughs> slower. Why don't you explain it to No, not slower. <laughs> Actually, illustrate it for right. me. So you have the surface area, which is the amount of surface that anything has. Of the cereal. Has. Right, okay, right, okay, yeah. Every little individual yeah, piece. Yeah, I get it. So yeah. for instance, like uh, a ball. Ha- does, uh, you don't have to give me a, a lesson. Okay, so, so there's a ratio called surface area to volume ratio. Right. The ratio of how much sur- area is exposed to yeah. air in relation to the total volume. Okay, okay, okay the size so it's of the a, thing. a density thing in right. a way. Yeah. Roughly. And so, I mean, scientists would probably say that's not the right word, but yes, we'll go with it. Yeah. So you're saying that like some things are like the higher uh, the higher the surface area in relation to volume. So mm-hmm. the more surface area exposed in relation to volume, the faster the cereal will absorb milk, mm-hmm. and the quicker it will become soggy. Right. And so are you in a hurry. Well, I guess it's in the morning. You're but you and morning. I are kind of on the same page. You know, oh, we good. like the cereals that okay break down a little break bit. down a little get bit soft. Have you ever tried? Putting the cereal in, put the milk in, let it sit, let it get a little soggy. Sure. Then add more of the same cereal so that you have two different textures of the same cereal. Do you have a job? <laughs> <laughs> this is my job. Okay. Don't okay. you understand? It's a yeah. miracle. Yeah. I'm actually at work right now, okay. Mark. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, like now what I eat cereal wise, yeah, I do brand buds because I'm old. Right. Which are they're the best? I think they are the bo- the most powerful brand cereal because the buds actually have psyllium in them, so you know it'll really fucking do the job. Then I have Trader Joe's brand flakes, which I'll use with fruit. Brand buds is just sort of like medicine. You're like, I'm going to do these now. Right. <laughs> but the brand flakes, or you can use them as flakes. And then it, for the treat cereal, puffins. Now Barbara's puffins are sort of like a, a, a Captain Crunch style. They're pillows, I guess they would call them. They're right. pillows, but th- they need to sit. They yes. really need to get soft. Know, look, so you're, you get regular puffins. You get peanut butter. puffins? No regular peanut butter ones are weird. They're, they're, they don't have the same consistency. They're bigger and they, they're more closer to a Captain Crunch vibe. They're okay. And then there's cinnamon ones too. And every time I buy those by accident, I'm pissed. <laughs> no, I like regular ones. And uh, but I, I have not. Perhaps I put more puffins in after the other ones were soggy. But I don't think it was an intention to mix up the textures. I wouldn't do it with puffins because those already take a long time to turn soggy. So if you're gonna put them both like. You're gonna wait a while, and then like you don't want puffins right out of the out of the box into the milk because they're gonna be too hard. Right, but I imagine some people are like that's the only way to eat them. Like this is a preference point. Yeah, and that's... you're you're gonna call them wrong. Uh, I suppose you're right. Do you use regular milk, almond milk, soy milk, vanilla almond milk, coconut we, I milk? I use whole milk, regular whole milk. Whole milk, like vitamin D milk, no yeah. percentages? That's right. What do you, what, what do you want to die? <laughs> what do you, it's like pouring fat on your cereal. You don't have a problem with that? Why you do that for the kids, for their bones? Yeah, something like that. All right, fine. See, for me, it's like what I do is I take puffins and then put a little pure stevia on top, just a little, and then I put unsweetened vanilla almond milk on it. That's my process. So you sweeten the almond milk with stevia? Kind of. I put it on the cereal a very little bit. You Why know, not I, just get sweetened almond milk? Because sometimes it's not sweetened with stevia. I don't want sugar in my almond milk. I don't know. It's just the way I work it. And then with stevia, you can make it really fucking sweet sometimes. And that has like no calories? No. It's, and it's a mystery. It's like a root. It's from a root. It's, I think it's processed like cocaine. 
because I like it, the good stuff, the pure stuff is like <laughs> just sort of China white. But then I recently got a stevia that's like it was like uh, it was like Mexican brown heroin because <laughs> so, it was a brown color and didn't taste as good and had sort of a texture to it. Right. So I imagine that's the intermediary between. You know the that two. stuff got smuggled in then. Yeah, yeah. Someone put stevia right in their butt, <laughs> but it's probably manufactured here. But that doesn't mean some hippies aren't traveling with it in their butt. <laughs> To make it really sort of like down to earth. I like the processed. I like the China white stevia over the Mexican brown stevia. What about fruit in your cereal? Yeah, I'll do fruit. No strawberries. I'm anti-strawberry. Don't trust the size of them. Like, you know, when you see a strawberry that's grown in the wild and it's sort of small and nice and delicate and powerful and it has good flavor. And then you see the ones that come in those plastic containers that are huge. Yeah, it's and you're crazy. Like, Why the fuck does that happen? The same way they fucked up tomatoes. I think they're doing it to strawberries. I like blueberries. Sometimes blackberries, if they're sweet. Banana I'll do occasionally, but that's sort of a chore, and the banana's got to be perfect. Can't have a, There can't be any slightly unripened banana. I'll just go nuts and throw it. This is why I have a job, Mark. Yeah, well, I'm helping you. You are, but do you see? Like, you, you know, one of my favorite reactions that I get yeah. to the Sporkful podcast is when people say, I never knew I had such strong opinions about that. Right. And well, you, it's, you yeah, have strong a, opinions. Sure. About well, these you things. get into a groove. You know, I haven't tried to like. Where do you stand on the musicals and the oatmeals? Because I'll do that occasionally, but it's not regular. You I, can't eat oatmeal in the heat because no. it's just like you sweat. I mean, I I like um, you're talking like hot muesli. I don't know the musically. I don't quite understand because like you get it in a traditional way. It's usually mixed with yogurt. It's usually right. like mixed in or like, like granola, a clotted cream or something. You know, like you get it and it's like a, it's a it's a density to it. It's not just put milk over it. I feel like, um, well, I love to combine. I, I almost never just have a bowl of one kind of cereal. You're I'm a always, cereal mixer? I'm, I got a couple of cereals, and then I'll, I like like sort of a, an X factor. Like, I love to sprinkle some, like, grape nuts on top or a muesli or something like that. I used to like, like grape nuts. Yeah. No more. I don't do them anymore. Oh, no. Why not? I don't know. I just stopped doing it. Because I do the bran buds because I think they're effective. Like, if I want to mix cereals, usually what I'll be doing is I'll get bran flakes and bran buds. Like, if, it, if I've been on the road for a week and I've been eating shitty, I'm like, right. that's my cleanse. <laughs> 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 I'll do a whole day of that. It's called the Cereal Cleanse. <laughs> this is another spinoff to go with the travel show. <laughs> Basically, it's called Mark Gets Old. <laughs> yeah. That's happening naturally. Yeah, right, that's right. all being integrated. Right, right. There's no reason for a spinoff. <laughs> there you go. That's the dynamic. The Marin Pashman dynamic. All right? So, uh... What happens now? I'll tell you. You know what time it is? It's blues legend. John Mayall. One of the first albums I remember sort of having was John Mayall. Uh, Looking Back, I believe, was the title of that record. Um, it, was, it had a picture of him with a six gun uh, hanging onto a train in a cowboy outfit. And on that record... There was a song called Mr. James on there, which turned me on to Elmore James, which changed my life. John Mayall changed my life, and I had inherited the record from my aunt and uncle's collection. But as I grew older and I looked more into John Mayall, I've got several Blues Breakers records, and he, it, it, a lot of people stopped by, man. A lot of people were in that band for a certain amount of time, and there were some pretty monumental guitar players, bass players, drummers. But anyways, I was thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to him. So this is me and John Mayall. He's got a new record out right now. He puts out a lot of records still, folks, if you like the blues. His new album is Find a Way to Care, and that's out now. So this is me and John Mayall. 
John Mayall. That's you. That's me. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was pretty excited to uh, to have you come in because uh, you know I, I think some of your records changed my life. <laughs> Wow, what a responsibility I have. Yeah, it's a big responsibility. Well, it's not a bad responsibility, but I think uh, when I was a kid, I inherited some collection of records, yeah. and Looking Back was in it, your oh. record Looking Back. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, when I heard the song Mr. James, I didn't know anything about the blues, really, and I thought, well, who the hell's Mr. James? So then I had to go figure out Elmore James, and wow. that it sort of started this whole process with me. Uh, of of learning about the blues and getting involved with the blues in terms of listening and stuff. So thank you for that. That's amazing. What a story. When, when did you start playing? Well, I started playing when I was about 10 or 11, you know, because my father had, he, he was a, a, a semi-professional guitar player, so he did have guitars around the house. Oh, really? Uh, but he also, I mean, the action was so high, I couldn't do anything about that, but uh, he had ukulele, and, uh, and I started on the ukulele with four strings there. Sure. So, um, listening to records by the Mills Brothers and, uh, you know, several several people you know so my grounding started there i suppose and then as, uh, as soon as i discovered boogie woogie piano which my father wasn't interested in at all you know i, I, I veered off from uh, his stuff and well who was that fats waller or, or pine top who'd you listen to no uh, it was uh, albert hammond's pete johnson mead lux lewis uh, was the instigators of that and then of and it, you know, one thing led to another, uh, led to Jimmy Yancey. You know, the thing is about music, once you find a starting point of somebody you like, yeah. and then you go exploring who was their influences and who were their contemporaries and things like that, and you begin your voyage of discovery. That's what happened with me uh, and you. Know, you. Yeah, That's exactly, exactly what I had with uh, with looking back. Exactly. Now, yeah. did your dad play out? Did he have a combo or was he a, you know, did he have a, a band? Who? Your father? No, no. no he played. He played uh, occasional uh, dance dances. You know. Oh yeah. So. I, in what part of uh, England you grow up in? Well, near Manchester. Yeah, so, so northern England. And and was there was there live music around that you would go to when you were younger? Uh, yes, when I was, uh, you know, probably probably uh, seventeen or eighteen, there was uh, the traditional jazz was the was the thing that most uh, bands were playing. So. Uh, you know, I, I I used to go to the Saturday nights when uh, the Saints jazz band were playing. That was the Manchester band, so they were a great Dixieland band. But uh, the pianist in there uh, was a, a, a boogie woogie uh, enthusiast. Yeah. So so he and I got to talking, and he introduced me to uh, uh, several play people who were the more obscure players. You know? uh, so you had that sit down with the, uh, with the piano player, you yeah, approached him. Yeah. And I, went, I went, actually went to his house, which was a very big deal. Really? Know? Yeah. Cause he was like he, a, a hero, right? He, and he had this 78 with a wonderful label I'd yeah. never seen before. And the, the artist was crippled Clarence Lofton, which I thought the name alone was, <laughs> it was great. Right. Was great, like I want to know what that guy's yeah, up to. So, <laughs> but you know, and the, another incredible player. You know, and it was so. that, how old were you when that happened? I don't know, it's, it's, yes, it's before I went in the army, so... Uh, in your teens? You know, it's, it's, yeah, late that's, teens. So that's a big deal when you're a kid and that musician you respect has you over and looks, he shows you the records. Yeah, he had, you know, he had American, he had American records. Well, that's the weird thing, because I've talked to... Uh, who have I talked to in here? I've talk, I recently talked to Richard Thompson, and I talked to uh, Lemmy from Motorhead. I've talked to a few British musicians, but yeah. there was, not unlike, uh, you know, punk rock in the, in the 70s and 80s here... 
we, you couldn't like American records were sort of like, wow, where'd you get it? Like, you know, you got one of those. It yeah. was hard to get them, huh? Well, um, people talk about that all the time, but uh, they they kind of overlook the fact that uh, that you know the British record companies did have quite a large selection, much larger than people would think. But you had to know what you were looking for, you know. Right. But, uh, but there was, you know, all uh, Josh White, Lead Belly, uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson. All these things were were out on seventy eights on, on on British labels. So they were there. You just had they to dig for them. Yeah. Well, you know, the people that you, you mainly talk to all seem to be 10 years younger than I am. So a little they're, bit. they're starting later, you know. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, by yeah. the time they came along seeking these things out, I already had, you know, gone through all that. Well, it's sort of interesting because, like, it wasn't necessarily popular music. So you really had to sort of find your way. I mean, I mean, to like, I have to assume that when you were 16 or 17, you know, Blind Lemon Jefferson was not like, you know, everybody wasn't going, you got to get the new Blind Lemon Jefferson jefferson release no absolutely not no but you know people you know went their own way and and built up their own record collections but it, it wasn't something that was all that uh, shared you know it wasn't right a shared experience so much as, as somebody who was uh, a fanatic about a certain style so, of music sir like a secret society like if it was shared there was a couple of other yeah. other fanatics yeah where you'd yeah. sit around going like oh my god listen to that yeah well I, you know i i, I played my, you know, my record collection to friends who anybody was interested in it, you know. Yeah, sure. So you got you went into the army? Yeah. For how long? Three years. And what what, what was going on? Anything? Well, uh, the, 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 when I went to Korea. Oh, you uh, did? Yeah. They, it, fortunately, the, the day I got my posting uh, to Korea, it was the day when they, they started the armistice. Oh, good. So that was very good. It, you two, it was two, dodged a bullet, literally. Yeah, it was, two, it was two months to get over there on the boat. Oh, my so, God. So by the, time, by the time I got there, you know, it was, it was well settled down into no nothing going on. <laughs> thank, God it, thank God transportation wasn't as effective as it is uh, today. It was, it, was, it was great, really. If, you, if To be you on the boat? Well, the boat was all right. I got, I've got myself out of a lot of uh, drill by, you know, pointing myself out as a musician oh yeah so i had so i had a guitar and uh i played in the ship's band which got me out of uh, out of the, the oh the, yeah yeah the, the 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 band was uh just me on guitar and a, a very bristly scotsman playing accordion and he was the boss and i can't remember i think there's probably one other person maybe playing drums i don't know <laughs> so what kind of were you playing polka oh, music that was, hor- that was horrible <laughs> But it got you through. Yeah, that's right. It was, it was a better better deal than being stuck downstairs and doing drill. Yeah. So you got. Uh, so you were you you play harp and you play guitar and you play keyboards and piano and yeah. you, uh, and maybe a little bass. No bass. No, not bass because you you don't really have to strong fingers for that. And you so get when blis- you, get blisters for yeah yeah it's hard to hold those down. But when did you pick up? Uh, you started on guitar and then you started getting into piano. Yeah, the piano. When I went to junior art school when I was uh, fourteen, they had a piano there which I was able to, you know, make a start on. Can you read music? No, it's weird. I can't either. It's, you don't need no. to, I guess. You just got a feel for it. Yeah, you know, I just plodded, plodded around, getting the left hand boogie woogie thing going, and it's and then eventually was able to put the right hand to it. To, takes a while, huh? To work it, did, yeah. Especially if you don't have a piano. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. The the new record, find a way to care, is is really a lot of organ on it. Yeah, it sounds great. 
You sound great. The amazing thing about being you, and for me anyways, about being somewhat of a purist about it, is that there's a consistency of the music that, you, you know, your commitment to the to the style, you know, you can I can feel your changes and what you explore, but like when you, when you land on it, I mean, you're one of the few guys really that has spent a lifetime writing original blues songs. I mean, you, you know, there's not, you know, I, I noticed that from the beginning that a lot of guys that started with the blues, they did the covers and then they sort of like moved into a different kind of music. But you've been writing blues songs for 50 years or so. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, the, the thing about the blues, the first thing I learned about it is that these guys are singing about events in their own life. Right. Their experiences they're putting into music and words. So that was important to me if I'm going to write songs uh, that it should be something that was about my life. Yeah, and as long as you know you stay somewhat challenged and uh, you know mildly unhappy. <laughs> well, you don't have to be. You could be joyous. You know, yeah, you could, I, wh- you can, whatever emotions that uh, are common to all people, and I think that's where. Uh, people can identify when they hear it. They say, "Oh, that, that happened to me." Yeah, I think that's what the. I think the blues is about. Uh, it's about elevating. It's about getting over whatever that yeah, is. The struggles of it's, life. It's not depressing music. No, it's a healing thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, okay, so you, where'd you pick up the harp? When did that happen for you? That was that was kind of later. The harmonica was. I don't even remember how that started, but uh, you know. I, fooled around with it yeah 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 and you just um, got you just got the hang of it yeah and um, you know just like everybody else you you start off trying to uh, copy the people that you have heard uh, i think it's probably sonny terry was one of the first ones who took my fancy and then that led of, of course to sonny boy williamson who for me is the king yeah, Sonny Terry's like a more of a folk blues, and Sonny Boy Williamson is a, a real kind of boogie woogie rocker. Yeah, dude. yeah, but there's a crossover there because you know Sonny Boy, yeah, had a pl- play uh, played acoustic too, uh, unlike Little Walter and all the electrified blues. Right, they st- he started with acoustic. Yeah, so you know when I worked with Sonny Boy, um, you know he taught me a few things, mainly what not to do. You know, when did you work with him? In in sixty four, nineteen sixty four, sixty four or sixty five. So you're like thirty, thirty one. Yeah. And you already had the blues breakers or before? I had the band. Yeah, I had the blues breakers. Yeah. So let's talk about the beginning of that because it's interesting. Like, look, I'm I'm sort of a Peter Green freak a little bit, mm-hmm. and and you know the difference because I think I, I think Eric Clapton never played better than with you. I, I just believe that. That's just. <laughs> My thought. Yeah, so, a lot of people. A lot of people say that. You know? Is that true? They do. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but the transition, like the difference between someone like Peter Green, because you know we were talking about the blues as being a you know sort of a, a release and and a, and a joyful music in a way. Like uh, you know, Peter Green was his guitar playing is fucking heartbreaking sometimes. You know. Yeah. It's heavy. But uh, when did you start the band, and who was in the original lineup, and how'd that come about? Um. Well, I, I had a, a, a band call, called the Blues Syndicate uh, in, in Manchester, you know, when, when Cyril Davis and Alexis Corner started the blues thing off in London. Cyril Davis? Yeah, the harmonica player. He had like a, a, a club, right? A, a, a residence at a club where he... he well, Alexis and, and Cyril... Alexis you know, Corner? Yeah. They got together and found um, a, a place where they could uh, play. And it, it grew very quickly, I think, from uh, from their... their enthusiasm and what was that 63 62 early 62 i think yeah and and who were the blues <coughs> bands around who was coming around um well no, the, nobody, there was nobody except those two yeah. at that time 
but you know that it, it led to all these uh, well the Rolling Stones for instance the Yardbirds um, there are so many bands they're all, all it's happened very very suddenly so here's me up in Manchester uh, you know these guys are playing stuff I've played all my life and I thought well this is this is an opportunity for me to you know put my oar into the water so uh, uh, I met Alexis and uh, he encouraged me to come down to London to to try things out which I did for one weekend and got three gigs there and uh, with the with the the band that I had in Manchester. Okay, so you go down to London and you get a few gigs. It's you and those guys. Yeah, and and, and so- then the Manchester guys didn't want to move down to London and give up their Manchester lifestyle and their jobs. So I I you know went down on my own and Alexis introduced me to enough uh, musicians so that we could get started. So, so the musicians that were around the blues scene, because I talked to Keith Richards too about it, and he was, and Cyril had an impact on them as well. Um, so the the guys who were around were people like the Stones, and were, and it, did you all just hang out together? I mean, that's really the the question, because it seemed like a very specific scene, and then it sort of blew up, right? Yeah, it, London is, you know, there were so many different clubs that, that sprang up. Yeah, they, they had usually been. Uh, trad jazz uh, venues, right? But you know, the, the, then it took over the, the blues stuff took over. And then, where did where did this sort of like the the pop music guys fit in? Where did the Beatles fit into this? Well, they don't really, but they you know they did. Um, I don't know. They 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 kind of uh, spearheaded the the idea that regular guys could put a band together uh-huh. and, and make original music. You know? Right, so, right. So they were, they were all part of that uh, explosion of youth. Right, right. That, but not blues guys. No, not, not as such. It's sort of funny to me that, like, because you're, you know, a, a full-on blues guy, a purist, and, and you know, when I talk to, uh, to Keith... They really set out to be like a, a real blues band as well. There was this this idea of authenticity that needed to be honored. Uh, did you feel that? Yeah, that was that was a lot uppermost in a lot of people's minds when it uh, when it first started, and then when they all got into it, they they kind of found their own identity and veered off into their own individual directions, which could have been, uh, you know, rock and roll. It could have been anything, whatever sure. their individual, individuality yeah. uh, required. And then the late sixties kind of blew it all up. And <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was it was very exciting time. We were working eight or nine gigs a week, you know. So there was plenty of work there. So how'd you go about auditioning someone like? Because I, I imagine then you, after the Manchester guy left, those guys went back home. So did you go through an auditioning process? How did you meet the original no. band? How did you meet Eric? And was it Eric the first band? No, he was in. He was in it about two years later from the from the first band. No, I, I just you know whoever was in the band. I think John McVie was the first one that I used on bass. And you just met him hanging around? No, he wasn't hanging around. It was uh, Cyril Davis's bass player lived in the same area of London that that McVie, John lived, yeah. uh-huh. and so so he wasn't available. So he told me to look up John McVie, who was just just starting to play. You know, so I tried John, and John worked out fine. First of all, when I remember John coming into the room and saying, "What's a twelve bar?" You know, so he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really starting at the beginning, but uh, so you had to teach him. 
In, indirectly, yeah. So well, he, go, he knew what he was doing, but he didn't yeah, know. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's very much like that. But, you know, I didn't really audition people other than, the, you know, have them show up at the gig if I had and I'd test them out that way. And Bernie Watson was the guitar player and he was really good. And he came from uh, Cyril Davis's band originally. So so Cyril Davis, was he that, that band was the source band for everybody. Yeah, that one. And then, uh, Alexis and Cyril were together initially. Uh-huh. And then they had a, a difference of opinion. Cyril wanted to be more purist, and and uh, Alexis wanted to use horns and oh, really? Yeah, more jazzy jazz influence. So they split up. So that that mushroomed into two bands right there. Oh, that's interesting. So was it, the horns were for a jazz influence, not for like an R and B influence? Because there were guys like J B Lenoir. They they used horns. Yeah, I know, but but he but Cyril didn't didn't hang. No with horns. No, no. He just wanted the basic combo, yeah, like two guitars. Basic, yeah, basic combo. Plus he had Cyril had three girl singers. You know, best, he, didn't have a problem with that. Like Raylette. Oh, really? Thing. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. didn't want horns, but he would have girl singers. Exactly. We yeah. understand where his priorities were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So when when you started playing with the uh, with the first band, what what was your sort of uh, uh, your a manifesto in terms of purist or not purist? You you would you just wanted you had certain covers that you did, and it sort yeah. of grew out of that. Co- you know, covers and, and and stuff that I wrote myself. But you were the band leader, yeah. And that that sort of like has been your place through all the records, really. Yeah, well, it's a great place to be for me because you know you, you know what kind of music you want, so you know what kind of musicians you want, so you know when you, how to pick them. So people ask me all the time how how I managed to pick all these place people who've become you know internationally famous over the years. Yeah, and you know like did you audition them? And I didn't really. I didn't, didn't ever do auditions. They sit in. No, I just knew of them and knew they'd be the right ones. Yeah? Where did you first see, like, uh, like Ansley Dunbar on drums? I really can't remember. Because um, he turned out to be sort of a wizard, you know, beyond the blues. Yeah, yeah, he got, he got to be so busy uh, in, a, in a good way, but it, it, it put Peter Green off and he, wanted, he it was, didn't sit well with him, all the jazz, jazzy drumming. Oh, really? Yeah, so it wasn't in Peter's direction, so um, I'd ask Ainsley, time was up, and uh, and then we got Mick Fleetwood in at Peter's uh, request. Uh-huh. So that's that's how that came about, Mick Fleetwood joining. Okay, and uh, when when you pick... It's very complicated, all this to explain, isn't it? <laughs> kind of, but like I, I don't think you know en- enough people you know know about certain things. You know, as time goes on, and people can you know, it's all available now. I mean, like so easily, you can just get on your computer. Yeah, that it, it all it really takes now to to even just to mention these names for somebody who's listening to this, and they're like Ansley who, and then they go look it up, and they look you up, and they're like, holy shit! Like <laughs> there's there's a hundred records here. Yeah, it's sort of a fascinating time, you know, and a lot of people they there's just so much coming in that they don't they don't respect the the history of it i know so well you know for, for us to have access to all these things in the early days uh you know you had to to go out and buy buy a 78 right. record uh, and you know you really had to to work at it you know there wasn't the great availability of the music that everybody takes for granted now and i think that the attention you had to pay for it it paid to it was almost like the the reverence of it like if you had that one record you're like i got it very much and so, you'd yeah. go home and you'd listen to it like you know a hundred times yeah and just kind of pound it into your head yeah now 
now Eric Clapton when like I have no sense of because like it's clear like you listen to those records you guys are a band you know it's not you know he wasn't standing out front I mean he did his part you did uh, you sang and did all your parts but uh, but did you when you when you were playing with him initially did you have a sense that he was somewhat of a, a, a like beyond brilliant blues player well anybody that I've ever hired I always have that feeling that they're all very special people who have their own identity so it's 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 the same for anybody who I've ever hired you know uh-huh I, I hear things in in people that that uh that reach me emotionally oh that's the connection and, uh, yeah and so i know right off the bat and when you guys were working on stuff like when you were working on the you know the the first blues breakers record or you know where the one where you started working with eric and like what how much of a of a collaboration in terms of styles because like you know he was a freddie king guy and you know you've got your influences did you have those kind of conversations where it's sort of like can we do a freddie thing and can we you know we, we are you into that and you know not really. I think I, I think I probably introduced Eric to Freddie King. You did, probably. I, you know, <laughs> because in the early days, Eric lived so far out of town that uh, I had him. Uh, I had a spare room at my house, so he he stayed at, the, at my house at the beginning. Well, how old was he? Like twenty? Uh, yeah, twenty. <laughs> Nineteen or twenty. So that's probably where he got it, huh? From your records, yeah. Because you know, he, he, I had, he had all my records available to him, so he made a lot of uh, discoveries. We used to listen to you know records yeah. together, and he, you know, it opened up a whole world for him. You know, so it was good. So you were like the uh, you were the wizard. <laughs> I, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> you, were the, you were the guy. Did you do that with all the guys? Like, did you do that with like uh, drummers and, and bass players as well? Like with John no, McVie? I don't know. Not really. Nothing that I can remember. You know, it's always been very casual. I know who I want, and and and, and it works out because they they fit in. And then, what? Why did Eric leave ultimately? Oh, well, he was restless. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, and and the fact that Jack Bruce was in my band. At the same time that Eric was, the two of them got together and they were just on fire with each other. And then Ginger Baker crept in there and talked to him. He'd, Talk. he'd worked with Jack a lot. Yeah. And they'd, they'd become great enemies. And uh, and together they talked Eric into, you know, making this power trio. So That was it. Off, so, they, off they went. To, so so where, like, where did the Yardbirds fit in? That was before Eric? Uh, yeah, before, before me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, so that's how that's how Cream started. Ginger Baker stole your guitar player and uh, your bass yeah, player. Yeah, well, Jack and Jack and Ginger were at, at war with each other right from the beginning. So I mean, <laughs> they'd worked with Graham Bond for uh-huh. like, a couple of torturous years, and uh, and but they were at war with each other. Yet they still played together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they fought together and they played together. I mean, that's why Cream didn't, didn't last very long. It just. <laughs> exploded <laughs> <laughs> and then what and then what blind faith happened after that i guess yeah I th- yeah but you were just going like when that happened when they went well, off when eric when eric and jack lived i brought john v back and uh he promised to not to drink so much and be a good boy and uh, so <laughs> so i needed a guitar player so you know we didn't have any time off it, i was working uh, gigs seven nights a week so you just had to keep moving so i just had to you know keep auditioning guitar players on on the gigs you know yeah let them all have a go and peter green was one of those in the audience and he 
was uh, bold enough to grab me and say, you know, why are you using these guys? I'm much better than they are. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he kept coming to gigs and, you know, dissing them and, and saying really? you should have a go. Yeah. So, you know, I, I said, okay, you come in and have a do it, have a do it. And it was great. Yeah. It, it only lasted a week. Then Eric came back. So, <laughs> Oh, it lasted a week? Yeah. And then Eric came Eric back? Eric came back and I promised Eric if he came back to, uh, uh, from Greece and his madcap adventures. With you know, Cream? No, before Cream. Oh, oh okay. So this yeah. is before he left. Yeah. He went to Greece? Yeah. <laughs> Some harebrained idea. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you don't even know what it was no. but uh all right so so was there tension between peter and uh, eric no they, no i don't, don't think they really knew each other it's interesting because like did you feel like uh when you had a guitar player you know you had you you had what you were doing but they they obviously the the tone of the band changed with peter right in terms of how he plays a lot more like minor it's heavy-hearted stuff uh, it's it's to do with a a, a musician's individuality you know the the the, the music varies yeah uh, and it, it comes to reflect the personality of whoever's playing it so so even though you might be playing the same songs with uh, a new guitar player uh, or a new whatever you know they it will change the the whole dynamic of the thing you know so sure yeah you know, i always like to choose i choose musicians whatever their instruments are for what they can you know bring to the table do you keep in touch with these guys i wouldn't know how to because they don't have their phone numbers or anything they're all <laughs> so, you know, in the case of in case of eric you know i mean yeah i, I have no idea how you, anybody would get in touch with him when was the last time you saw him you never show up at festivals together or anything he seems no. to be back into the blues no. kind of full yeah. on well he hasn't given me a call to invite me on it but uh, that's uh, one of these things. that's sort of sad and to then me. uh peter is you know a lost soul so i don't know mick taylor is also not very available he's he's a bit he's a bit of a wanderer and nobody really knows what he's up to yeah he showed up with the stones for a yeah, little while a little while you know and i think it's whatever happened i don't know so mick uh, mick taylor came after peter yeah and you and they're different players mick taylor is like yeah it's very interesting the, yeah. the, the way these guys play yeah and well, you, you know i always make sure that they if i choose somebody i want I've, I've chosen them for for the way they play and um and and so that that's the part that they're uh therefore you know to do their own take on it and how did that make your music evolve you know did you learn from these guys did you find that playing with these guys pushed you to different places uh, it, it inevitably does whoever you're playing with you know you are uh, playing collectively so sure you're inspiring each other and uh, enjoying the uh personalities now i saw a documentary with uh you know about peter green that bbc documentary called man of the world mm -hmm. which was sort of heartbreaking and uh, he he claims that the the way fleetwood mac started is you you got them a studio he said that you got him some studio time and yeah, it was uh, a birthday present for him yeah really yeah and it was his birthday so he can have have, have the afternoon at the studio and you know and then you lost your whole band <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> It doesn't matter. No, I know, I know. <laughs> Did you? you know, if a person has, has got some other direction in mind, you know, it's pointless to to slog away at it because you know their their heart and their direction is 
you know, they want to do something else. You know? And you feel that way still, I guess. Yeah. It's just the, the evolution of the music. Yeah. So let's talk about when you, you came stateside. I mean, because that, that seemed like a pretty rich time. You, you know, you were you were here in the late 60s, right, first? To, yeah, 68. You just, you came temporarily or did you move here in 68? Well, you know, America was the land of dreams for me. It was where all the music came from. And everything else that yeah. was part of culture, you know. Yeah. So, so once I saw California, that was that was uh, for me uh, the, the the start of me saying, "Well, I've, I've got to come and live here." And That's did it. you? And you were sort of on the pulse of what was happening here musically because you moved to a pretty uh, uh, exciting. You moved here, right, to Hollywood, to Laurel Canyon. Yeah, yeah. And that was its own thing, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't move for anything so this is the weather and this is the climate and the whole way of life this is where i want to want to be so it only took me uh, less than a year to uh, having first come to america in january mm-hmm. uh you know i think by the end of the year i uh, pretty much got it sorted out to come and live in la and that was in the late 60s so like what was it the i imagine that you know, being in the blue circuit and and seeing what was happening in in england in 68 so the Stones and the Beatles were already blowing up, and you, you know, you had success with your first few albums, and, and you decided to, to move here because you thought you could do better in the music business. No, it wasn't for music reasons at all. It, it was, was just it climate, was climate, yeah, way of life. Um, and what was Laurel Canyon like in '68? It was, you know, obviously there were less houses there, so it was, you know, less built up, but it was, um, you know, it was very um, p- perfect place for me. Good community. I always get the feeling that every, that the, your neighbors were always interesting. Well, uh, Laurel Canyon is a much larger area than people think. There's many different roads that wind there or yeah. around there, and I can honestly say that I never met any uh, fellow musicians, uh, named musicians who lived anywhere near me. So, oh really? No. Did you did you, uh, did you build friendships with some over time? Well, only on, in the course of, you know, when you're playing shows together and you, you meet various people. Did, what, did, Zappa lived up there. Yeah. Did well, you? Well, Frank was the one who I stayed at his house um, for my summer vacation. Where'd you meet Frank? In New York, actually. Yeah? Yeah. Um, uh, I think maybe I met him in Europe first. Frank's gigs were always very different from each other. You know, they, it was, he had such a... A wide repertoire and imagination, you know. So, and how was it? Because it seems so different than like I, I think he is sort of blues based somewhere in there. Uh, yeah, he was very, very. Str- his his interests were very much in blues, but they were also uh, in in so many other different forms of music. And you were you were just open minded to that. You were you were sort of not you, you liked what he was doing, you know. Uh, when yeah, he was, he was a, a great guy and very uh, very uh, very creative. Yeah. Know? It must have been wild to see those shows at that time. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's just very, very exciting. I think, luckily, they are available to people. Oh, yeah. They're, it you seems know. like the, the, the Zappa catalog is well cataloged. It's, it's huge. It's well, like, well tended to. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, you've got, you've got, you're not, you're no slouch with the records, man. Yeah, I counted them up today. It's uh, 67. 67. Or, original albums, and there's countless others which are, compilations and things like that so you put out like at least one record a year really that's the way it seems to have worked out although there were, it just depends on on the, who the record company was and 
initially with with Decca Records, you know, there was um, the beginning of the the so-called blues uh, explosion. You know, we did several albums in a short time together. And it seems that like once you moved here, that it was undeniable that there was there was a different tone to the music and to what was going on here musically in the late '60s, right? So I mean, you you sort of I don't think you departed from being a blues purist, but you you did do different types of records once you got here, right? Well, I, d I also did that before, you know. I mean, I, I put the did the Bear Wise album. I had had uh, the horn section and using jazz players, right? You know, so. Um, and then the, the Turning Point album was with no drums. So they're all different explorations in, in my career and things that I've wanted to try. Which is the one where it's just two of you, or you on mostly, almost like a solo record? Was that? Oh, a, that's the blues alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I played all the instruments except drums. And and you just you just overdubbed it? Yeah, double tracking. How did, was that? Was that more interesting than? Did you prefer that to working with a band, or was it? It little, was a, it was an like, experiment. It was for the for Decca Decca Records had a a low budget label which they put on various things that they didn't have to much fork out any money for. So you know, I, they offered me a chance of just doing something solo. It wouldn't cost them anything. So you just took them took them up on it. Yeah. So I thought, well, that's that's a good, a good. It wouldn't it wouldn't affect my regular uh, record release schedule. And working with jazz guys, how was that different for you? Um, I don't know how to explain it. Do you like these it? things? Yeah, I mean, it's just it, it, whoever I pick, it's got to be stimulating to me. Uh huh. Whether it's jazz, whether it's rock and roll, whatever it is. So. Here, here's a question. It's I think it's a tricky question, though. I, I uh, do you, do, are are you happy with the way it's unfolded for you? In the yeah, sense, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you, I, it's amazing that you you work and tour com a lot. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've never had a year off or any any kind of time off. I've always worked. And and you've stayed here in 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 Los Angeles area for this whole time. Yeah, more. I've lived here more years than I've lived in England. Now, when you tour, like what, because I know you've done some live records and like, where do you find, like, because early on, even with the blues, uh, it seems that, that in Europe, there's a, there's a, a more intense following for, for certain types of music. Do you find that when, 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 when you were starting out with the blues, where were your big countries? Where did you find the most success? Well, there's, there's so much work in England that, that you know, that there was no time to go anywhere else, but the, I think we went to Scandinavia first, as, as the country we went to, went to. Um, uh, it just grew gradually. Mm -hmm. you know. And who you do know. you find go to the shows now when you come? Are they are they uh, the the original core? Like are they older people? Yeah, or? The, you know, you get people who are not necessarily there at the beginning, but you know, have been following for a long time, and they've got uh, kids who've uh, been. Uh, brainwashed into listening to this music you know by the <laughs> parents you know and then they come you know the kids are now teenagers and and older you know mm -hmm. and so you, it's a mixture always and how you have kids right yeah i got i've got six and six grandchildren really yeah are they all around or any of them in england or are they all here no they're all they're all uh, they've got two two are here and did any of them uh, go into the music business? Yeah, my eldest one, Gaz, uh, Gaz's rock and blues has uh, 
been a, a, a mainstay on the London uh, blues scene for rock and, rock and roll scene more uh, for 20 years or more you know so he's a big deal in in London and when do you when when you go to London do you ever sit in with him well it, it not no, don't really have time oh yeah but I have done yeah yeah and, and he then, play, what's he play he plays keyboard oh yeah yeah did you show uh, him everything I don't know <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you don't know. You, you never sat down with him when he was a little kid. No, I don't, don't do things like that. You know, it's just around. The music's there in the house. When you, and, and if you want it, take yeah, it. Yeah, there you go. Well, let's start, let's talk about the new record. How do you approach? Like, because it, it seems to me the production's you know, like really clean and it's solid, and you can you know you can hear everything, and your your keyboards are right there. Your voice sounds great. It doesn't seem like any of your energy or focus has diminished at all in the entire career. It's it's sort of fascinating. Well, I guess you never did the drugs no i never did i never never smoked a joint or anything so oh really no, I, I i did my share of alcohol <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, but, yeah but i haven't done that for no, 15 years or more so. how do you feel about this record i love it i think it's all it, you know the, the the band that i have now is the best one i've ever had we've been together over five years now and it doesn't seem like anything at all who's in it uh greg arzab is the bass player uh uh, from Chicago, uh -huh. and his uh, his friend Jay Davenport, also from Chicago, is on drums, and then I have Rocky Athos on uh, guitar from uh, Texas. Oh yeah, was he? He's a Texas blues player. Yeah. Hey, who did? How did you find him? Was he, was he just out here? <laughs> well, no, he sat in with us when Buddy Whittington was the guitar player, and uh, so he and Buddy were good friends. And uh, I just always remembered it when when I finished with the Blues Breakers. Uh, you know, I thought I thought of Rocky would be the next guy. Oh, so he's been around a long time. Yeah. Uh -huh. Now, are you like uh, you know? It was weird because I had this moment <laughs> where I made the mistake of uh, you know telling uh, Keith Richards that uh, yeah, I really haven't seen the Stones live since Bill left. You know, because in my mind, you know, that was the band. Yeah. And you come from a, a different you know you, you know your bands evolve, you evolve. But in my mind, the Stones needed Bill Wyman, and he was <laughs> like. He was like, "Oh, that was twenty-five years ago. I got a great bass player now." Like, he obviously he loves Bill Wyman, but yeah. it, it's about the band you have. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and I imagine like even when you walked into my house and I had those uh, those first few records, you had that moment. It seemed where you're like, "Oh yeah, those records." <laughs> Do you, like, I guess you, you, if you're the guy doing it and you keep growing as an artist, you're not going to you know get hung up on those first three records for your whole life, like exactly, some people yeah. are. And well, it's it, a long time ago. Let's face it. I, it is. I, I guess it's a long time ago. But I guess because of the vortex. Yeah, exactly. But do, do you feel that way? That you know, basically, the, the band you have is 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 the best band that you're in. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about it. It's uh, you know, it's not just the music. What holds it together is the friendships and the camaraderie that you have when you're with on, a group tra of guys traveling all all around all all the time you know it's just it has to be right because out of that comes the music right and i imagine that because of those first few records and you know even you know the ones previous to moving here this is a pretty short time yeah i mean sure like because you're playing with these guys you said on this record for five years already and that's probably a pretty long run for a band that you've had uh yeah yeah uh, the, the prior to that was a, was with buddy whittington it was uh 12 to 15 years and before that, Coco Montoya and Walter Trout was ten years. Yeah, so so those so, are real relationships. Yeah. <laughs> so those like in, in retrospect, 
you know the the guys that went on to become these you know these you know rock heroes or whatever they run less than a year yeah flash <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> so does it annoy you to talk about it no it's, it's it's fascinating really people can't get over it really well i have to assume that on some level somewhere <laughs> somewhere in you it's good, it's good stuff yeah. yeah but it's hard to get over like peter green isn't it and yeah, like even for you, like I mean, it, it, like well, the thing is, it's all there, you know, thanks sure. to records, all these things are captured, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, for all time. And uh, and in the so, do you feel that the how has age affected how you, how you approach the music? Do you find that you've gotten deeper with your lyrics? Do you find that you know you you've gotten a little uh, more open hearted? How does it work like it, that? It's freer. It's freer and. Uh, it, it comes more naturally now, I think, you know, with the right people, that we all encourage each other and there's no moodies or things that can get in the way of the creativity. Right, there's no, e the egos are less. Yeah, we're all we're out, there, out there to have a good time and share it with the audience. And you're all old pros. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when, when how, how's the touring schedule looking? You, you're going to head out soon? When do you head out uh, on this record? We, we leave on uh, on Thursday. Well, I, I got to say, the new record, uh, Find a Way to Care, is great. And it was a joy listening to it. And it was amazing talking to you. Good. Yeah, well, we'll be hitting the road. And we, I think we've got um, two and a half months with three days off. Wow. All the dates are on the website, johnmail.com. And you feel fit? What do you do to take care of yourself? You eat well? You exercise? <laughs> I, I get out of bed in the morning and go swim some laps in the pool. Oh, you do? That wakes me up. Oh, good. Oh, so. good. All right. Well, you look great. <laughs> you look great. And I really appreciate talking to you. It was an honor for me. Well, excellent, Mark. That's it. Blues legend John Mayall. Check some of that new stuff out. Check some of that old stuff out. Check it all out. That mid-period. That early, actually, those first few records. Yeah, man. And the new record. Do what you got to do. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. Get on the mailing list. Check my schedule. Do what you got to do. Get some JustCoffee.coop. And uh, to close this show, I'd like to say I feel uncomfortable in my body. I'm exhausted. And, uh, oh, oh kind of fat. Boomer lives! <laughs> <laughs>